Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. Hello? Nick, hey man, it's Luke. Oh, hey Luke. Hey, question. 30 years ago, you were like 10, right? At uh, this time of year, yes. Yeah, okay. Yes, so I was 10 years old. 30 years ago, what would have been like your go-to after-school snack? So something that you would make for yourself, not just open, but make for yourself. What would it be? SpaghettiOs. SpaghettiOs. Would you still eat that today? Heck yes. Really? Wow. If my wife lets me. That's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> but delicious. What's funny is you haven't gained a pound since fifth grade, so it's weird that you could still get away with eating <laughs> SpaghettiOs. I've been trying. That's amazing. Wow. I think mine would have been, actually, we used to make something called hot butterdoes. Hot butteros. <laughs> yeah. I thought this is like a common thing that people did. Turns out it's just something I think my mom came up with, but it's just like Cheerios and you put a bunch of salt on them and heat up butter and pour it on them like popcorn. It's just poor man's <laughs> popcorn, but... We ate it like crazy, and I'm pretty sure my brother, who's like mid-40s now, still makes hot butter. Dough. Nice. My buddy and I used to make, uh, we would put American cheese and top it with Parmesan cheese and fold it and eat it. That's oh, close. God. <laughs> <laughs> would you still eat that? No. Okay. I didn't even like it then. Awesome. Well, thanks, man. I'm going to start 30 Pop now. All right. Can't wait to hear it. All right. We'll see you. Bye. From Milieu Media Group, this is 30 Pop. A weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Braun. This is Season 3, Episode 21, Newborn Calves and Dead Babysitters. Today we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, June 8th, 1991. Hello friends, welcome to yet another trip down memory lane. I hope you're as excited as I am to turn the clock back 30 years and reminisce on what the pop culture landscape looked like this week in 1991. We were and are officially into summer at this point, at least according to school calendars, which were the only ones that mattered to us back in those days. We could now officially claim to be one grade higher than we could a week or two earlier. And that was, at least for me, a very big deal. It was especially important to me in 1991, as this was the summer before I started sixth grade, middle school. I was no longer, and never to be again, an elementary school kid. I was rapidly approaching what I now believe to be one of the most formative seasons of my life. In fifth grade, I was a bit of a class clown. I was a popular kid in my class. I was intelligent, but disorganized and uninterested in schoolwork. I was far too busy exploring love experimenting with profanity, playing peewee basketball, and choreographing dance routines to concern myself with things like math and science, etc. But in sixth grade, well, I'd have to leave much of that behind. In sixth grade, I moved to the other side of the school district, away from almost all the friendships I'd spent the last six of my 11 years on this planet cultivating. And while we still only lived about 10 minutes away from one another, it felt as though I'd never see those people again in my life. And in fact, until Facebook came along nearly 20 years later, I didn't see them again. Moving to the other side of the school district was one of the first major transitions I ever experienced in life. 
I left my carefree, confident, comfortable-in-my-own-skin identity behind and moved to a school where I was the new quiet kid in the lowest grade on campus. There were no organized sports for sixth graders and almost no opportunities for choreographed dance routines. Profanity was far more commonplace as the real rebels had graduated to things like cigarettes and even experimenting with alcohol. And as for love, well, these kids were exploring in ways I had never even heard of. They all seemed to know each other, and they all seemed to know what was cool and what wasn't. They had six years of history to build upon, just like all my elementary school friends had in their new middle school. I had none of that. No identity, no clue, nothing but confusion and self-consciousness. I say all of that to say, in this moment 30 years ago, I was experiencing the last carefree summer of my life before my personality really began taking shape. Rest assured, I was loving it. I was still holding tight to the delusion that in just a couple of months, when I would stroll my overly confident feathered head into North Oaks Middle School for the first time since my older brother's 8th grade choir concert a couple years earlier, the world would remain my oyster. I had no clue about the shy, self-conscious, introverted wallflower soon to emerge from within. With not a single hypercolor t-shirt or pair of Z Cavarici or Jabot jeans to my name and no idea whatsoever that Trapper Keeper binders were no longer the status symbol by which my peers would measure me. I was just enjoying a summer filled with good music, great movies, driveway basketball, church camp, Totino's frozen pizzas, and a complete lack of supervision from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday, as both of my parents worked all day and my aforementioned older brother could not have cared less about where I was or what I may have been setting on fire. That summer was glorious and remains rich with nostalgia for me today. So, let's get into it. On June 4th, 1991, the first live album and fourth overall album from the always wonderful Amy Ray and Emily Saliers, better known as Indigo Girls, hit shelves. It was entitled Back on the Bus, Y'all, and from what I can tell, it wasn't terribly well received. My hunch is that the band's diehard fans probably loved it, and as a current longtime fan, I want to love it. But having seen them live within the last couple of years, I'll just say they've only improved with age. The songs on the album hold up, even if they're missing a few really obvious hits from those days, in my opinion. I just think they come off a little too angry in these performances. But it doesn't feel like real anger. I'm good with real anger. These sort of feel like manufactured anger to me. I don't know. I should probably spend a little more time with it before I really form an opinion. Granted, it's been out for 30 years, but I just discovered it, like, right now. Also released on June 4th, 1991, or at least, maybe, was the platinum-selling self-titled debut from the mononymous British pop singer-songwriter Seal, which featured his acclaimed first single, Crazy. But we're never gonna survive unless we get a little crazy No, we're never gonna survive unless we are a little This album was a big success for Seal and established him almost instantly as one of the most relevant and respected artists to emerge from the 90s music scene. It wasn't his most successful album, though. We'll get to that in a few years when he releases his oddly also self-titled sophomore album. 
And to be completely transparent, I'm not positive about the June 4th release date. I found mixed reports of this album releasing on May 20th, May 24th, and June 4th. My best guess is that the album released in the UK in May and in the US on June 4th. It's entirely possible that I'm a couple weeks late on this one, though. The good news is, I don't really care, and I can't imagine that any of you really do either. Whatever the actual release date, we were collectively beginning to embrace Seal as one of the beloved voices of the decade. The new number one album in the country had definitely released in May of 1991, though, and has since become widely accepted as one of the quintessential pop albums of all time. The triple platinum selling Billboard chart staple and second studio album from pop songstress Paula Abdul, Spellbound. Despite being her second studio album, this was Abdul's third platinum release, her remix album Shut Up and Dance having released a year earlier. And as critically and commercially successful as this album was, selling nearly 4 million copies across the globe, it was nowhere near as big as her 1988 debut, Forever Your Girl, which has sold more than twice as many copies worldwide. The lead single for this album, though, the music video for which featured Hollywood heartthrob Keanu Reeves leaping from a speeding car and rubbing a carafe of ice-cold milk on his face, was a huge hit for Abdul. The song, Rush, Rush. I'm gonna run, I'm gonna try, I'm gonna take this love right here, all my heart, all with joy, oh baby, baby, please. Rush, rush, hurry, hurry, love, come to me. Rush, rush, I wanna see, I wanna see you. It's odd how much better both this song and its accompanying music video were in my memory than they are in reality. I'm honestly not a fan. I loved Paula's first album, but this marked the end of my interest in her music. And beloved as this album was, and may still be by fans, it also marked the end of their interest in her music. She'd release one more studio album a few years later to only moderate success. Although she would find significant cultural relevance again a little more than a decade after this album as one of the original judges on the Fox singing competition, American Idol. As for our other Billboard charts from this week in 1991, they looked mostly the same as last week, with Diamond Rio and Color Me Bad each enjoying their second week at number one on the Hot Country and Hot R&B and Hip Hop charts, respectively, and Yo-Yo enjoying her third straight week at the top of the Hot Rap chart with her single, You Can't Play With My Yo-Yo. We did have a new number one song on the Hot 100, though. A song that I honestly thought was a few years older and that I'm shocked was only at number one for a single week. The surprisingly soft, slow, acoustic ballad by glam, funk, metal, hard rock band Extreme, More Than Words. More than words is all you have to do to make it real than you were.
I was surprised to learn that although the album that featured this song, Pornography, did go double platinum, this single was only ever certified gold, 500,000 copies. Considering the enormous cultural impact of this song, I would have guessed the single had far outsold the full album. Unsurprisingly, the band wound up resenting this song within a few years as it came to define their careers despite being a complete departure for them musically. Eventually, though, thanks in part to some profanity-laced wisdom and encouragement from their elder statesman and tour mate, Aerosmith frontman Steven Tyler, they did eventually wind up embracing the song and their fan base's love for it. They continue to play it live to this day when they perform. Now on to Hollywood. We had three major theatrical releases this week in 1991. One I love, one I like alright, and one I'd really like to see, but for reasons beyond my comprehension can't find in any sort of streaming format, Spike Lee's fifth feature film, the romantic drama Jungle Fever. Why are we out here tonight, Flipper? Alright, you gotta promise me that you're not gonna tell anyone. My lips are sealed. Come on, what happened? All right, but you gotta swear. I mean, this is like swearing a stack of Bibles, swearing like a zillion rosary beads. I swear on my great grandmother, okay? We swear, we swear what? I, I cheated on Drew. I'm saying somebody. You too, Simon? Who are you saying? Oh. I thought you were gonna drop a bomb. I. And what is he, like blonde, blue eyed surfer type? Hey, dude. Right? <laughs> She's white. White! Man, you. Hey, well, he's black. If your father ever found out, I don't know. She's Italian. H-bomb. From Bensonhurst. Nuclear megaton bomb. Hey, look, this is the 90s. There's nothing wrong with it, you know? The both of you's got jungle fever. The both of you. This summer. Why don't you pull a car over, pal? I mean, I, I don't want any trouble, you know? I promise. Just pull it over. From director Spike Lee. Welcome to the Taj Mahal. Eight wonder of the world. Yeah, the mama wants to know where the TV is. It's right here. Being Bill smoking the color TV. Jungle Fever. Wesley Snipes. Annabella Shiora. Spike Lee. Ossie Davis. Ruby D. Samuel L. Jackson. Lynette McKee. John Turturro. Frank Vincent. And Anthony Quinn. You got a big problem. You and her. Original songs by Stevie Wonder. This was the film debut for both Halle Berry and Queen Latifah, and it was, by most accounts, the film that really broke Samuel L. Jackson into the mainstream. He plays a crack-addicted character named Gator Purify, the older brother of Flipper, played by Wesley Snipes. 
And interestingly, he played the part just two weeks removed from his own discharge from rehab for alcohol and cocaine addiction. According to IMDb.com, his ravaged look wasn't makeup, but actually the result of his own detoxing. He played the role so convincingly that France's famous Cannes Film Festival created the Best Supporting Actor Award to honor his exceptional performance. Or more so, they revived it. They'd given the award three times previously, in 1979, 80, and 81, but it was retired at that point. As I understand it, the award for Best Actor can go to either a lead or supporting player. But in 1991, the jury was so deeply moved by Jackson's work that they revived the award to honor him. Interestingly, the Best Actor award went to John Turturro for his role in the Coen Brothers film Barton Fink, which we'll talk about in a couple months. Turturro was also in Jungle Fever, though, and had appeared previously with Jackson and Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. Thirty years later, the award has never been revived again. Another fun fact about this movie, for her role as Gator's also crack-addicted companion, Vivian, Halle Berry supposedly refused to bathe for the two weeks leading up to shooting in preparation. As a fan of Spike Lee's work in general, I sincerely hope this film makes it into some sort of digital format soon. Another film that debuted in theaters this week in 1991, one which does exist digitally in the world, which I finally saw for the first time this week, was the Christina Applegate comedy, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. When's your mom leaving for Australia? Oh, in about an hour and a half. She's leaving you guys all alone. I'm getting rid of her for two whole months. I can go to the beach, I can stay out as late as I want, I can do anything. I'm a free woman. Hi. Hello, dear. I'm Mrs. Sturak. I'm a babysitter. What? All right, you little maggots, now line up. Are you serious? I'll make your summer a living. TV rats your brain. It's time we let her know the rules. Yeah, we outnumber her. Let's kick some butt. Mrs. Sturak. Mrs. Sturak? Oh, my God. She died in her sleep. They'll probably blame us. Hey, be careful. I got her. No, I mean my skateboard. Don't tell Mom the babysitter's dead. Rock and roll! Now, Christina Applegate and her brother... What? Bounce back. For a summer with... Have my baby. No rules. In your dreams, babe. No curfews. No nagging. No pulse. Oh, how you doing, Mom? No, Mrs. Durack's not here. She, um... She went to the yarn store. So, what do you guys want for breakfast? Cheese omelet. SpaghettiOs. Breakfast is served. Mow the lawn today and don't forget to do the dishes, okay? Ah! Dishes are done, man. Don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. This is the only movie I can think of that I've quoted since I first saw this trailer as a kid without ever actually seeing the film. When I watched it this week, that was the first time I'd ever seen it, but I've quoted it no fewer than a thousand times in the last 30 years. Always after washing dishes. A few little trivia bits about this movie. It was originally entitled The Real World, but with the new MTV reality series of the same title slated to premiere in 1992, they changed the name to the much darker Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, a title that did not go over well with critics. In fact, very little about the film did go over well with critics. 
It was considered especially unoriginal in its premise and cheesy in its execution. In fact, one critic went so far as to refer to it as, quote, the film equivalent of processed cheese. The case against its originality is largely related to its being released under the massive shadow cast by Home Alone, which, yes, was still in theaters in June of 1991. Still bringing in $1.5 million this week after 30 weeks in theaters. For context, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead only lasted four weeks in theaters. Regarding originality, it probably didn't help that Keith Coogan, who played the role of Applegate's 15-year-old stoner brother, despite being almost two years older than her, was most recognizable at the time for his role as Brad a few years earlier in the Elizabeth Shue classic Adventures in Babysitting. All that being said, the film developed a cult following despite being a commercial and critical failure. And honestly, I get it. I expected to endure it this week for the sake of this episode, but honestly enjoyed it. I won't argue with the critiques of it being cheesy, it totally is, but not much more so than most of the other teenage movies from that era. Would it have been better with a John Hughes or Chris Columbus directing? Sure. But they turned it down. As did John Landis, Amy Heckerling, Joel Schumacher, and a number of other amazing directors. But Stephen Herrick, who did direct it, is no slouch either. He's the same director who gave us Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, The Mighty Ducks, The Three Musketeers, Mr. Holland's Opus, and Rockstar with Mark Wahlberg. I think this movie deserves a little more credit than it got. Granted, not like a lot more, but a little for sure. As does the other new release from this week in 1991. The top earner at the box office 30 years ago, a movie I loved then and love even more today. Billy Crystal, Jack Palance, Bruno Kirby, and Daniel Stern in the midlife cowboy comedy City Slickers. You ever reach a point in your life where you say to yourself, this is the best I'm ever going to look, the best I'm ever going to feel, the best I'm ever going to do, and it ain't that great? Happy birthday. For Mitch Robbins, turning 39 wasn't the end of the world. It just felt like it. I'm losing hair where I want hair, and I'm getting hair where they shouldn't be here. I found four big fat ones on my back. I'm starting to look like the fly. He couldn't put his finger on what was missing. Show him the brochure. It's fantastic. But his friends could. Two weeks, the three of us. Driving cattle. What, like in a truck? No, it's a real old-fashioned cattle drive. Go away with Ed. Take Phil. Go and find your smile. Welcome to the Stone Ranch. Believe it or not, that work you saw a while ago, y'all are going to be doing that the next two weeks. My ass hurts just watching this. What do you think? I think you look like one of the village people. I'll pay for that shirt, too. That is the toughest man I've ever seen in my life. Did you see how leathery he was? He was like a saddlebag with eyes. Hi, Curly. Kill anyone today? They ain't over yet. <sighs> Arnold, uh, I'm losing you. We're, yeah. we're going behind a butte. And Arnold... I got a special treat. We're going to make fresh coffee. Wow, something's spooking the cattle. City folk. The scouts have a baby. Reach in and pull out the calf. You know, this was not in the brochure. This summer. <laughs> Billy Crystal. Look what I did. I made a cow. Daniel Stern. I lost my wife. I lost my job. And they've got some sort of rash. 
for making in the bushes. And Bruno Kirby. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. Oh God! Hit the trail. You know what the secret of life is? No. What? This. Your finger? Just one thing. What's the one thing? That's what you gotta figure out. Let's just leave the herd and get the hell out of here, huh? A cowboy doesn't leave his herd. You are us burning gun salesmen. Not today. Sometimes you have to get your feet wet. God, I don't like this. To sit a little taller in the saddle. I'm 39. I'm saying moo cow in a river. Do you believe this? <laughs> Came out of your city slickers. You're gonna go home, cowboys. City Slickers. I'm on vacation! Like I said, I loved this movie when it came out, and I've loved it every time I've seen it since. But prior to this week, it had been several years since I'd watched it, although I'm reminded of it often. But I've never appreciated it as much as I did watching it this week. I never realized how exceptionally spot-on this movie is in exploring the transition into middle age probably because I'd never watched it while I was personally anywhere near that transition. But watching it now, in my very early 40s, it resonated on a completely different level. It's also still just really, really funny. Billy Crystal is a national treasure, and this movie could not have been more perfectly cast. In fact, as it relates to Jack Palance, who played the part of the intimidating old cowboy and deep well of wisdom, Curly, he was actually Billy Crystal's first thought when he was struck with the idea for this movie. And there's actually a pretty amazing story there. So Billy Crystal's dad was apparently super involved with the New York City jazz scene back in the day. And the great Billie Holiday was a close family friend. Supposedly, she's the one who took Crystal to see his first movie in theaters when he was just a kid. That movie was the 1953 Western Shane, for which Jack Palance received an Oscar nomination. It was his second of three career Oscar noms each in the Best Supporting Actor category. His third was for City Slickers, and he finally won. The film had some other interesting ties to Billy Crystal's real life as well. For example, this scene, in which his phone rings at exactly 5.16 a.m. on the morning of his 39th birthday. Hi, Mom. <laughs> it's September 8th, 1952. We're driving back from your Aunt Marcia by water breaks. Your father jumps the divider of the Sawmill River Parkway and races me to Doctor's Hospital. And <laughs> at 5.16, out you came. Oh, happy birthday, darling. Oh, here's your father. Hi, boy. Happy birthday. Hi, Dad. How are you? I'm losing feeling in my left Here's your mother. Don't worry, he's fine. So, what are you going to do now, birthday boy? Well, I thought I'd lie here another three and a half hours and then go to work. And this scene, in which he describes the best day of his life. I'm seven years old and my dad takes me to Yankee Stadium. My first game. We're going in this long, dark tunnel underneath the stands. I'm holding his hand and we come up out of the tunnel into the light. It was huge. Green the grass was, brown dirt, and that great green copper roof, remember? Now, we had a black and white TV, so this was the first game I ever saw in color. Sat there the whole game next to my dad. Taught me how to keep score. Mickey hit one out. Good day. I still have the program. 
Each of these scenes are taken right from Crystal's real life. He really did go to that baseball game with his dad and leave with Mickey Mantle's autograph on that program, which he really does still own to this day. In fact, now it has Mantle's signature on it twice, as 20 years later they wound up guesting on the same talk show together and Crystal asked him to sign it again. And apparently his mom really did used to call him on his exact birth date and time each year to recount the story of his birth. Somehow knowing each of those things makes this movie just that much richer for me. I love it so much. And I'm not alone. To date, the film has grossed nearly $200 million after being produced on a measly $27 million budget. In fact, it made half of that back just on this, its opening weekend, which is very impressive in light of all the other great movies that were in theaters 30 years ago this week. Friends, trust me, if you haven't watched this in a while, and especially if you haven't watched it anywhere near your late 30s or early 40s, go buy it immediately. You're going to want to watch it. Then you're going to want everyone else to watch it, so you may as well own it. It's so, so good. Also, by the way, this was the acting debut of young Jake Gyllenhaal. I didn't realize until this week that he's the kid playing Billy Crystal's nine-year-old son in the movie. And his older sister in the movie? That's Billy Crystal's real-life daughter, Lindsay. And the store clerk that Daniel Stern's character has an affair with? That's Yardley Smith, the voice of Lisa Simpson. Anyway, I could go on, but I won't. We have another one of my favorite movies from 1991 coming up next week. And honestly, every week for a while. So many favorites. You must come back. For now, I'm going to wrap it up, but I'll leave you with one of the greatest monologues in comedy history. The wisdom Mitch Robbins gave his son Danny's classroom on their career day. Value this time in your life, kids, because this is the time in your life when you still have your choices, and it goes by so quickly. When you're a teenager, you think you can do anything, and you do. Your 20s are a blur. Your 30s, you raise your family, you make a little money, and you think to yourself, what happened to my 20s? Your 40s, you grow a little pot belly, you grow another chin. The music starts to get too loud, and one of your old girlfriends from high school becomes a grandmother. Your 50s, you have a minor surgery. You'll call it a procedure, but it's a surgery. Your 60s, you have a major surgery. The music is still loud, but it doesn't matter because you can't hear it anyway. 70s, you and the wife retire to Fort Lauderdale. You start eating dinner at 2, lunch around 10, breakfast the night before, and you spend most of your time wandering the malls looking for the ultimate and soft yogurt and muttering, how come the kids don't call? How come the kids don't call? By your 80s, you've had a major stroke and you end up babbling to some Jamaican nurse who your wife can't stand but who you call mama. Any questions? 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Braun. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 30 years ago that you want to share, leave a message on the answering machine at 30pop.com. 